So I want to talk uh, a little bit today about the supernatural. <clears throat> someone asked, and I'm sorry I can't remember at the moment who it was, but someone asked in the religious trauma page, what questions got you started down the path of deconstruction? <clears throat> and there were so many and been so many uh, in this process for me, and I know for many of you as well, that uh, I, an I answered you know, off the top of my head initially, and then that question just has kind of stayed with me, and I've thought about it more and more and more. And I think if there were two things that I could say about deconstruction, that for me, the biggest one was the, the atrocities in the Old Testament, not having good answers for the atrocities that were committed. And the nature of Yahweh, as he's revealed in the Old Testament, being completely inconsistent with the God that I knew and the God that I preached. And, of course, I would have said back then, well, God revealed himself in Jesus because we have this caricature of Jesus that he's just always good and loving and kind and all that stuff. Unless, you know, for some people in ministry, they want to be jerks, and then they'll uh, be jerks and be offensive, and then they'll uh, say, well, Jesus did this when he threw people out of the uh, out of the temple or whatever. <laughs> but... In, in all honesty, you know, Jesus, in at least the way he's portrayed, particularly in Matthew's gospel, particularly in the book of Revelation, not so much in Luke's gospel or the gospel of John, but definitely in Matthew and definitely in the book of Revelation, Jesus is portrayed very Yahweh-like, very punishing, not unconditionally loving at all, very trauma-inducing. It's in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives this impossible standard in the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, had to startle the ears of his hearers, but startles our ears as well. And at the end, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? If anyone uh, hears these sayings of mine and they do not put them into practice, they're like a man who builds his foundation on the sand and it gets blown away. And then he goes on, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can say what you want to. You can put fancy interpretations on this. You can do all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, changing the meaning. I mean, we're always in trouble when we have to say Jesus didn't mean what Jesus said. Jesus meant something else, right? We're always in trouble when we have to do that. And so we could say, well, the kingdom of heaven that he was talking about, that's not eternal life. But that's not what we were taught. That's not what we were told. And that's certainly not what I read when I was, uh, <clears throat> you know, in middle school. It's not what I heard when I heard preachers preaching it. Tent revivals. I remember going to a tent revival when I was 18. Scared the shit out of me. I remember going to an Assembly of God church when I was in high school and holding on to the back of the pew. And, of course, people would say, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sins. But, no, it was religious trauma at this idea that I was going to lose my soul because I was never going to be able to be good enough. Because here Jesus is talking to a group of his followers. He's talking to a group of his followers, and he says, Many will say to me, not just a few, many will say to me in that day, um, or, or many that call me Lord will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And they'll say, Lord, didn't we, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we work miracles and wonders in your name? And he's going to say that to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who work iniquity. And so it doesn't take a genius to put this together and realize that Jesus is saying in, in Matthew's gospel, if you do not live according to the Sermon on the Mount, you're not going to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven when the kingdom of heaven comes. And the, the ancient Jewish mindset was apocalyptic. The, the ancient Jewish mindset, Jesus, uh, now whether Jesus said this or not, we don't really know, but we know Matthew said that Jesus said this. And Matthew was apocalyptic in his gospel. And what I mean by that was he was looking for judgment. you got to understand that the uh, ancient world was not pleasant. It was not enjoyable. Maybe some of the Roman citizens and stuff, if you were a Roman citizen, you had it pretty good. Pretty cosmopolitan life, but it was still a tough time. You didn't have the modern conveniences, and you certainly did not have any kind of social equity economically, and particularly if you were not a Roman citizen, then you were generally, uh, I mean, there's a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. You didn't have a middle class. So for the vast majority of people and the multitudes that Jesus was talking to, and certainly the Jewish multitudes, they were wrestling with and struggling with these questions of, 
inequity and unfairness between the haves and the have-nots specifically. And the book of Deuteronomy promised that if they would follow Yahweh, they would be uh, the haves. And so when you look at apocalyptic literature, when you're honest about the biblical scholarship and when you're honest about what the text says, the apocalypse, the apocalyptic literature, was about a day of reckoning for the wicked. It was about justice. It was how they dealt with the problem of evil, that Jesus was going to come or the Messiah was going to come, set up the Messianic kingdom and deal out justice. And those who were unjust, those who were wicked in their deeds and in their hearts, not uh, this this idea of grace is not in the New Testament like we think it is. It really, really isn't. And so the idea was that, that Matthew is presenting and that definitely the book of Revelation is presenting is a messianic figure who's going to come and, 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 and those that will be excluded from the kingdom will be those that were wicked. Now, does that mean that we're going to, that the Bible taught eternal conscious torment? No, the Bible, the Bible itself does not teach eternal conscious torment, but it does teach Judgment and the book of Revelation does teach a second death or destruction or destruction of the soul. Um, now, the question becomes, is that an accurate idea of life that works for us today? Because their apocalyptic, their, their, their end time scenarios, their judgment scenarios did not come to pass. <clears throat> but clearly Matthew is saying, if you don't live according to this message, of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in Matthew 25 and says, if you do not take care of the poor, if you do not visit people in prison, if you do not clothe the naked, if you do not uh, go and visit the sick, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will go into eternal fire. And, and, and the thing about it was over and over and over again, there's this idea that you're never going to know. You, that Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And not all who call me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to do all kinds of theological twisting of scripture to say, no, Jesus in his mind and, 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 and the mind of the hearers, he was talking to those that were under the law. This was not an issue of law. This was an issue of social inequity. And uh, to say that he was talking to people under the law is to have a view of ancient Judaism that is one that matches more in your mind, your legalistic Pentecostal church, than it does anything of ancient Judaism, and uh, <clears throat> and it 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 uh, does not underscore and minimizes the apocalyptic expectations of the people of the day. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is, <laughs> why did I get off on all that? <laughs> because these were the problems, these were the issues that I was having with Christianity, particularly that God would choose one race to wipe out another race, that he would favor one race and make them the head and not the tail, and then tell them to go into the land of Canaan because they had the wrong address. You can try saying all you want because they were Nephilim seed. That's not what the scripture says, and you're a little bit out of touch with reality uh, if you believe in all that stuff. Um, because, <laughs> first of all, that seed should have been wiped out in the flood if you believe in that. But secondly, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they had the wrong address. They were living in the wrong land. So God favors Israel and then goes in and commands them to commit genocide, to kill babies and women and children and animals. Uh, so, so Jehovah is so bloody and the energy of that is so, and I'm going to keep saying this and I'm going to keep saying this and I'm going to keep saying this, but we are seeing this on full display within the evangelical, particularly Pentecostal evangelical movement. They are tied into those bloody, warring energies of Yahweh and the, the apocalyptic Jesus that is presented at least again in the book of Matthew and specifically in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so that that angry energy, that judgmental energy, that that need to attack people that don't think like them or believe like them, anything other than unconditional love is because the energy of that is built up. The energy of that is built up. And you're dealing with a tri ancient tribal war god, not necessarily the creator. Now, you had another <coughs> group of people in... Uh, at the time of Jesus, there are writings from the time of Jesus. There are traditions that trace back to the disciples, just like in the Orthodox Church, there are writings and traditions that trace back to the disciples. 
But there is a Gnostic tradition, and the Gnostic tradition is this. The Gnostic tradition was that uh, there's a demiurge, there's a, there's a, there's a, a god, uh, Yahweh. They, they look at Yahweh as being evil, as being a, a demiurge, as being, um, well, really what he was. <laughs> And they said that, 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 that humanity was trapped under the enslaving power of this demiurge, of this god of this age, if you will. Now, um, so what they would say is that Jesus came from a different father. Jesus said that, that somewhere out there at a higher, at a different dimension or realm, there is a god of love who's nothing like Yahweh, who's not connected to any of this stuff who wants to finally reveal himself or show himself. And so they believe that Jesus came from this other God that was not associated or connected with Yahweh. Now, people can say that's not historically accurate, but it is historically accurate because that, that was Gnostic faith. Now, the uh, Orthodox Church trampled out Gnostic faith and there was certainly some things about Christian Gnosticism that we wouldn't want to embrace today. But you do have to wonder if the message was more consistent with what Jesus actually taught. And by the way, let me say this. There's a growing uh, group of scholars out there that believe both the Gospel of John and the writings of Paul are Gnostic in their origins. There's a group that definitely believes that that Paul was Gnostic. And there's good evidence for that because you wouldn't have a canon of scripture. You wouldn't have the Bible today. You wouldn't have the writings of the Apostle Paul if it wasn't for a guy by the name of Marcion. Marcion, I think, lived in the second century as a wealthy merchant. But he was a Gnostic. He definitely could not accept the warring energies of the bloody God of the Old Testament of Yahweh. And so he was looking for a list of books. And so he had Paul's books. I think he included in his canon, very first one to propose a canon was from a Gnostic, Marcion, was the writings of Paul. What we have is the writings of Paul, uh, Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. So Luke, Acts and the seven letters of Paul that we know for sure that he wrote. Uh, and he was a Gnostic. So there's a good chance that Paul was a Gnostic. Jesus makes some very seemingly Gnostic statements when he tells the disciples, you're of your father, the devil, uh, and the desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Um, definitely making a Gnostic statement there, as well as no one has seen God at any time except the son who has come from God. Uh, no one has seen his, you, he tells the Jews, You've seen his form, nor heard his voice. So it's this idea that there's this other God out there that is more loving. So these ideas, these these struggles that people have had with Christianity that I was having, these questions that I was asking, um, were very much uh, being asked from the very beginning. But the second thing, and I'm going to come back to this sort of Gnostic thing in a minute, but the second thing that troubled me and that I was struggling with was how... Spirit-filled Christians could know so little about the spiritual world and how the spiritual world operates. That they could have such a dualism of light and darkness, good and evil. There's uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we think the angels, but we're not too sure about the angels. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute that are completely and totally good and holy and righteous and loving and radiating with light. And then over here you have Satan, Lucifer, a devil, and demons that are completely evil and bent on human destruction, going against God. And these forces are mutually exclusive and at odds with each other. So that's where they begin in their understanding of the spiritual dimension, the spiritual world. And for the most part, it's darkness out there. For the most part, 
I mean, you could go to any Christian bookstore. I know it was this way five years ago. It was definitely this way 10, 15 years ago. You could go to any Christian bookstore, and you could find volume after volume, book after book, on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, 10, 12, wrestling against the spiritual wickedness in high places, the principalities and the powers. Um, you could find all kinds of books on deliverance. You could maybe find a handful of books on angels. I think that's changed to a certain degree. But uh, uh, Billy Graham wrote one. Maybe somebody wrote about some things about angels. Um, yeah, sorry. I just saw by, uh, Byron. Hi, Byron. Said, I agree with Marcy. And I think John's gospel talks about the Demiurge uh, being cast out by the judgment of the cross. I.e., forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That's really good. Good point. Um, so... But, like, n- no understanding of the spiritual world. And so, this, this verse in Colossians started my deconstruction. That and my experiences, because I was having experiences always since I got into this in the spiritual uh, realms and dimensions, and oftentimes they were not congruent with uh, what I was told. Oh, and I mentioned the angels. The angels, you're, the angels are okay. The angels are there simply to protect you. That's what uh, Christians think about angels. The angels are there strictly to protect you, maybe send you messages every now and then, but certainly don't talk to them because you might get an angel of light. And so I realized that from at least the Christian perspective, the Pentecostal uh, prophetic movement that I was part of, the charismatic world that I was part of, the flesh and spirit were off limits. So you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. The only pleasure of the flesh you could enjoy, uh, was baked ziti and fried chicken at the, uh, at the Sunday potluck that you had. You could, you could get into your fried chicken and your baked ziti or you could go to Denny's after the meeting. Uh, but you know, uh, you didn't want to, Drink too much. You certainly didn't want to imbibe or drink too much because you might cause a, a brother to stumble. Jesus turned the water into grape juice, not wine. So that was out. Um, and so many couples that even got married struggled with sexual pleasure. Um, any kind of sexual pleasure was out in between consenting adults. Uh, and oftentimes, like, there was not a switch that could get flipped so that when couples got married, it's very, very common for Christian couples when they would get married, especially if they came out of purity culture, to struggle enjoying sex in the bedroom. So we know anything sexual, sometimes even between married couples, that's out. Um, movies, music that didn't stir you spiritually, music that didn't draw you closer to God or have the right kind of message, that was out. Um so entertainment was out um, to a to a large degree. Uh, drinking was out for a lot of people. Sexual pleasure was out. Uh, so you could have your your that was it, man. You could have your baked chicken, your fried chicken, and your ziti, and your spaghetti, at, and that was it. That was the only pleasure of the flesh you were allowed. But then you weren't allowed to enter the realm of the spirit either, because everything out there is scary and spooky, and you can only talk to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no divine feminine, no aspect, no archetype of the divine feminine. And if you did encounter angels, and you sure as heck couldn't encounter the dead. Like you couldn't encounter ancestors. You couldn't encounter um, other uh, people from, you know, that had passed on that might give you messages for their loved ones or something. Nothing like that was valid or allowable. And if there weren't entities that fit into this dualistic frame of all good or all evil. Uh, if you met some out there, you didn't know what to do with that. So anyway, it's just a mess. But you, you come to Colossians. So you, you couldn't. So here's what I want you to see. You couldn't have the flesh and you couldn't have the spirit. You, could, you couldn't enjoy either realm. You couldn't manifest for yourself. If you, if you learned the laws of attraction or you learned the power of faith and you learned that it came from you, not from outside of you, or that uh, psychic intuitive abilities came from you, not outside of you. You couldn't fully embrace that. You couldn't celebrate that. You couldn't enjoy that because you had to give all the glory to Jesus. It is so dehumanizing. It is so bondage-inducing. It is so... Uh, there's so much bondage within it. And yet, and yet, in my experience... 
over and over and over again, we experienced healing, we experienced signs and wonders, we experienced yokes of depression being broken off of people's lives, we um, experienced financial breakthroughs. Now, we weren't quite as uptight. We weren't as, I wasn't as uptight as I came across. I mean, I was at times, but I, I loosened, you know, in later years. I reached about 30, whatever I started to loosen on a lot of that legalism. Uh, but I was never comfortable in my own skin. You, you always thought, oh, if, I, if I'm too loose with morally, with what they say is moral, if I'm too loose morally, then God's going to get me. Uh, <laughs> that I'm going to end up being one of those who uh, Jesus talked about who ends up, you know, calling him Lord and doing signs and wonders, but not entering the kingdom because I couldn't fully keep the Sermon on the Mount stuff. Uh, so you can't relax into who you are and really enjoy stuff because you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Or heaven forbid, you're out having a drink with your wife or your family or, or your friends or having beers with your buddies and someone in the community or someone from the church see you because as a pastor, there's so much bondage, uh, so much bondage that you have to live under there. <clears throat> so yeah, Gary says, I'm with the shack. God is a black woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that shack was a real gift. To us, for sure. It's interesting, though, that those guys that, that, that you know, um, Paul Young and those guys are super Trinitarian. It'd be interesting to see, even though he brings that divine feminine archetype into the shack, it'd be interesting to get their thoughts on the divine feminine, because the archetype, at least, of the divine feminine was excommunicated from the church. <laughs> so Colossians, let me come to this. So Colossians, um, it says, I'm kind of rambling all over the place. He says, giving thanks to the Father in verse 12. Uh, let's back up. Uh, verse 9, he says, For this reason also since the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So he wants you to have all wisdom, but all spiritual understanding, understanding of that which is spiritual, all of it, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So unless you have this spiritual wisdom and this understanding, you cannot walk worthy of the Lord, you cannot be fruitful, you cannot please him, and you cannot increase in the knowledge of God. And then it says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father, watch this, who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He says, being a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Yeah, Gary says, rambling, you're just being you. <laughs> I'm enjoying it too. Uh, but, I, but I want you to see this, this is really important. Um, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So he does talk about this dualism of darkness and light because that was in Judaism because of their exposure to Zoroastrianism in Babylon. But anyway, you, you have this concept of darkness and light, but Paul is not putting the emphasis on the darkness. He's saying you've been delivered from the dominion of darkness. You've been delivered from the control of darkness, and you've been brought into the kingdom of the Son of His love, where you have an inheritance in the light. And then he goes on and he says, uh, uh, verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Watch this. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Here's what Paul says that's so startling right here. Paul says there is a kingdom of light, there is a kingdom of darkness. And he says there are things created that are visible and things invisible. So he's, he's awakening you to both parts. The, the charismatic church, the, the so-called spirit-filled church, did not let you or teach you or even understand or know how to plug you into the things invisible, right? So they said the things invisible are off limits because it's mostly darkness out there. It's mostly demons out there. I put this on my Facebook page. I put, you know, the, in the charismatic church, we, we, the things of the flesh were off limits and the things of the spirit were off limits. I was going somewhere with that. And I forgot. And so this guy, this Christian guy says, uh, we cannot hear the voices, the other voices that are out there in the spirit because we're hiding because as Christians, we are hidden 
under the shadow of the Almighty. I want you to think about that. And I said, yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that probably shocked him. He didn't respond. I don't think he knew how to respond. I totally agree because you guys are so afraid of the spiritual realm, you have to hide. And you need covering. And you're hiding under the shadow. And so, yes, the only voice you hear is the voice of the Most High because you're so afraid of it. You've been taught to be afraid of it. You're hiding under the shadow of the Most High. We both agree. But what we don't agree is that that territory is is essentially dangerous. And what I'm saying is, Paul's saying that you as a saint, he's saying to the Christians as saints, there is an inheritance for you that is in the kingdom of light, and there is a God who's created things visible and things invisible. So there are realms of the spirit. There's not one realm of the spirit that's a throne room where everybody's just worshiping uh, God around the throne and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty 24-7. And we're thinking, my God, we've been at this for three hours. I died and I came to heaven and I've been at this for three hours. And this, maybe I went to hell. Because this, I mean, that does not seem enjoyable to me. I'm thinking, if that's all they're doing for all eternity, I want to know what's going on down there. Because <laughs> it can't be much worse. But that's what we think. There's like this one dimension or realm of heaven. But Paul's saying, look, there are many realms of the invisible world, just like there are many countries and continents and cities and places and planets and things in the natural and the visible world. There are many realms in the invisible world. There are many spaces. There are heavenly places. So there is a geography of the invisible world that they never taught me about when I was in Christianity. And he says, in this invisible creation and visible creation, there are thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. So not only are there regions of the invisible, but these regions are inhabited. There are spiritual beings, not just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just angels and demons, but a populated spiritual world, a populated spiritual world. And there is, it is there in that light that you find your inheritance. And I thought, I can go to Christian bookstore, I won't find one book that will accurately and effectively teach me about this world. That will accurately and effectively teach me about what Paul is praying, or the writer of Colossians is praying, for the saints that are receiving this letter to receive in spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they can be fruitful, so that they can be fruitful in every good work, so that they can walk worthy of who Paul calls the Lord. Hey, Claude, glad you're enjoying some fried chicken there, bro. <laughs> so my deal was, the more I engaged with the, with the spiritual world, the more I encountered things that were more like what indigenous people would have said the spiritual world was like. The more I encountered things that was more like what shaman would say the spiritual world was like. That I encountered things that would be more like what occultists would say the spiritual world was like. That I would encounter things that would be more like what mystics, Christian mystics, would say about the spiritual world. But even the Christian mystics are confused because I understand what they're doing. You read a lot of those mystics, they say, don't get too hung up on your experiences, and I get it. Uh, but they say, like, don't get into them at all. Like, if you see an angel or you see Jesus, whatever, like, just completely ignore it because they want to space out into nothing. Um, and I'm just, I'm not into that either. But but what I'm saying is I'm having these experiences. So I'll give you a couple of, uh, yeah, Gary says we have to go. Uh, to what is called the New Age, to learn the geography of, this, of our spiritual realms. Exactly, Gary, exactly. And see, that's the issue. And that's where, you know, I, I love what you're doing, Gary, and people like you that have stayed in the church and are are holding fast to your anchors, to your, your basic principles of your own experience and understanding of Christ, um, but also, you know, doing what you can to turn the tide on this. Because here's the other thing I'm going to suggest. There was no good pathways that I found within the system, within organized Christianity, for personal transformation, for what we might call shadow work, for the transformation of the soul, for being able to change something about myself or about my life. We're too busy waiting for God to do it, or we're told that he will do it, or has done it, and we just have to believe it and walk in it. Um but then what do you do with some of these areas of, of shadow and darkness 
um, if, if, you, if you can't balance them with the light, that's what prevents you with whatever's in your shadow. That's what prevents you from destroying your life or other people's lives is you have to bring balance to the shadow with the light so that I'm all for being Gandalf the Grey as opposed to Saruman the White. I think when you try to be the white, you end up, your shadow ends up kicking your butt. But so my point is that there, there was, there was not good community where there could be openness and transparency. If you think there's openness and transparency and community in the church, I challenge you to go to some support groups at, uh, <clears throat> for mental health. Um, I remember working at, uh, doing my internship <clears throat> at the state hospital and sitting in on some of the support groups and there was more transparency, more authenticity, more acceptance, more healing than what I was seeing in my own church community. Uh, you know, so go to, go to AA groups or go to some kind of support group or therapeutic group. They're not all good. They're not all healthy. You may go and say, dear Lord, but if you have a good one and a healthy one, people are, there's space there for people to be authentic. There's space there for people to talk about their real problems and their real issues. And there's acceptance there, real acceptance. And I wasn't seeing that within the church community. I wasn't finding the healing and the transformation that I was looking for because I wasn't finding the pathways. I had to turn. So, Gary, to your point, we had to turn to the New Age realm to learn the geography of our spiritual realms. But we had to turn to people like Joe Dispenza and Greg Braden and the self-help industry to learn how to fix ourselves and improve our lives. So what a value were we really bringing to people? But see, I, cu- I couldn't be a, uh, agnostic. I couldn't be a atheist because I had too many experiences in that world, in that realm. I had too much experience with what we would call the anointing, what some people might call the kundalini spirit or power. Now see, all my Christian friends are out there. See, 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 he got the kundalini spirit. He got deceived. He got all these things. And what I want to suggest to you is, no, I got enlightened and I got awake and I got freedom and I got peace and I got fruitfulness and I'm happy on my journey. Uh, and if you're happy on your journey, God bless you. Uh, we can bless each other in that. Uh, I'm just using a different language because I'm not afraid of that language. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be deceived uh, at every turn and at every corner. So I want to I want to finish with this. I got about 15 minutes before I want to finish up. I want to finish with this. Doug Wentz kind of got me onto this this week. He, I was watching a live video that he did. And he makes this statement from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, he, verse 3, it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds, I want you to watch this phrase, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, watch this, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God, watch this, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the enlightening that he's talking about is the light from within, the glory from within, the glory and the light shining in your heart. So the idea is you're going to look in your heart and expect to find darkness, but you're going to find glory and you're going to find light. That's that's the idea. But watch this phrase. They don't believe this gospel of the light that's in them. They don't believe this gospel of the Christ that's in them. They don't believe this gospel of the image of God, the Imago Dei that's in them. They don't believe this gospel of the glory, the treasures that's in them. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded their minds. I want you to hold on to that phrase. The God of this age. Now, who's he talking about there? Because he mentions Satan in a number of places. He doesn't say Satan. He says the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? I like to suggest to you that it's possible, particularly if Paul had some Gnostic leanings. It's possible the God of this age was a Roman God because they had they had many gods, right? Like there were many gods. So he couldn't just be talking about a Roman god. He could be talking about Caesar because Caesar saw himself as a god. And I suppose some scholar somewhere has dug up some 
antique or what artifact that says, you know, where Caesar refers to himself as the god of this age. But the only group that believed in one god was the Jews. So what if he was talking about Yahweh as the god of this age? Or what if he was talking about a demiurge as the god of this age? Or what if there is in every age, every time period, every religious system, a god of this age, an egregore, again, to use that term, an egregore that gets created with the thoughts and the intentions and the passions and the worship, all this human energy that's coming, that the, the, the create the eternal part of our spirit, the, the light of our spirit, the creative part of our spirit, and not realizing who we are and not realizing how powerful we are, and collectively and energetically creating this, this entity that takes on a life of its own, that becomes the God of this age, that blinds the minds of unbelievers. Now, here's where I want to go with this. Just just bear with me a little folly. What I'd like to suggest to you is that in Pentecost, and I'm speaking to my brethren who are part of Pentecostalism, who are part of the prophetic movement, who are part of the charismatic movement, who are part of the evangelical movement. I'm speaking specifically to you. And what I'm saying is that in the 1900s with the, with the, the Pentecostal revival, that we are living under a God of this age, the God of Pentecost. The God that we've known in our past experiences is the God of this age, in a sense. And it's blinding us from the light and the glory that is within us. Now, I believe we're in a shifting of the age. I believe we're shifting from the age of Pisces to the age of Aquarius. Now, so on a smaller scale, we could take the 1900s Pentecostals till now. On a larger scale, we can take Christianity from its beginning until now, and we can look at it under the frame of Pentecost and Pentecostal power. Pentecostal power, the power to prophesy, the power to heal, the, the power to speak in tongues. Uh, that's all part of our heritage. It's connected to the God of this age, and it's connected to the power of this age. Now, I shared this story before, but I want to share it again because I saw something when, when Doug was talking about this, the God of this age. Uh, I want you to think about the heaven that you live under. Do you live under the heaven of the God of this age? Do you live at the Feast of Pentecost? To use a biblical paradigm. Do you live at the Feast of Pentecost alone? Some people live only at the Feast of Passover. Passover did not have uh, the power and the signs and the wonders and uh, of of Pentecost. Passover was about the lamb. Passover was about the blood slain. So the Passover Christians are, are the John the Baptist Christians. We know John the Baptist uh, preached mightily about Jesus, but there was no power in his ministry. Jesus even says, he that is least in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. And we know that John the Baptist did know mighty signs and wonders. So you have John the Baptist Christianity, you have Passover Christianity, and people who deconstruct from Passover Christianity, people who deconstruct from John the Baptist Christianity, here's what I mean by that. Again, Acts chapter 19. I don't mean to be talking over your head too much, but Acts chapter 19, um, uh, Paul goes into Ephesus and he meets a group who knew only John's baptism. They had not baptized, been baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There was no Pentecostal power in their lives. And it says they were mighty in scripture and they spoke accurately of the ways of the Lord. So you have denominations who base themselves on scripture, but they have no power. Not to mention they have no uh, understanding of the spiritual world at all. They have no power. They, they're, they're literally powerless. They preach a morality and a philosophy of life at best. And they don't even preach a good morality or a good philosophy of life. And maybe they get involved in some social aspects. So this is your Southern Baptist denomination. This is most of your Methodist denomination. This is uh, a lot of your Lutheran and Episcopalian denomination. They're at Passover Christianity. And then there were others who moved into the power of the age with with William Seymour and the the explosion of Pentecost at Azusa Street in the early 1900s uh, that went around the world. And then that gave birth to the charismatic movement, which gave birth to the third wave of independent uh, uh, Christians. And it was it had certain hallmarks. It had hallmarks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Any of you that were part of that, you you know what I mean, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like 
you felt something. You felt the presence of God. You were empowered. You were changed. You partook of some power in that. And you were able to maybe minister power in that. I was talking to a group uh, yesterday, and I was saying, you know, we, we used to have people that would fall in the Holy Spirit, but we didn't teach that. Like, it wasn't expected. You didn't have to take a courtesy drop. Most of the people that would fall would be people we would pray for, and they would get a jolt of something. So there was some genuine demonstrations of power that was happening there. And there was healing and the anointing uh, uh, for healing. That's all part of this Pentecostal experience. Speaking in tongues, part of this Pentecostal experience. The gift of prophecy, the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy to bring encouragement, prophecy to bring the testimony of Jesus. This is all part of the Feast of Pentecost. There were three feasts. I'm giving you a biblical paradigm. So you have Passover Christians who um, are <clears throat> uh, not experiencing the power of God. All they have is philosophy, a philosophy of life and morality or ethics. And maybe they get involved in social distributions of stuff. Uh, and they'll tell you Jesus has the power to change your life, but they'll tell you to pray, but we don't know why God usually never answers prayers for people that are sick. We don't know why God usually never intervenes. Maybe once every so often uh, something happens, we say that was God. But for the most part, it's just the power of the gospel is a changed heart and a changed life, which really is just no different than cognitive behavioral therapy. If you change your beliefs your and your actions, your life's going to change. So, so if you suddenly believe, if you've got a bunch of shame and you suddenly believe that you've been washed in the blood, that you've, that you've been forgiven because of the death of Christ, whether it's true or not, whether it's empirically true or not, whether there's any reality to it in the mind of God or the cosmos or not, if you just believe that, you're going to get rid of some of that shame and guilt. If you quit hanging around uh, a bunch of criminals, and you start hanging around people with different ethics, your behavior is going to change. The outcomes that you're going to receive are going to change. If you get off of drugs and you stop your addiction, the outcomes you receive are going to change. This is Passover. It doesn't take any power of the Spirit. It doesn't take any power of any being outside yourself for some of that stuff to happen. So that's the Passover version. So those people who deconstruct almost always end up agnostic or atheists. But now you got this other group of us that we've experienced and tasted the power of Pentecost, right? We've tasted the power of this age. We, watch this. We've tasted the power of this age. Now, <clears throat> I want to give you something from Hebrews, and then I'm going to bring this all together, and I'm going to be done. I hope this is helping you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, <clears throat> it's helping me. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, leaving the... Discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to something else. Now watch this. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, God permitting. Now watch this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, once enlightened, look at the language that he uses, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, watch this, and the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. Now, let's compare this. Paul said the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they would not believe the good news of the light of the glory of the spark of the divine within them. The writer of Hebrews talks about partaking of the powers of the age to come. So each age has powers, or you could look at it this way. The Passover Christians have Passover power <laughs> because their God does not, their God form does not heal. Their God form does not speak today except in the Bible. Their God form is not God on flesh. Their God form is not rivers of living water pouring out from you. Their God form is not laying hands on the sick and the sick shall recover because they're at Passover. So they partake of the power of that age. Now, in the Pentecostal circles, God baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, gives you other tongues as a language, Gives you the power to prophesy. Lay hands on the sick and recover. Those were the things that we held on to. 
<coughs> and it and that's your God form. It's the God of this age, Pentecost, the God of this age. So you will partake of the power of the God of this age. You'll partake of the power of this age. But in order, now watch this. In order, the writer of Hebrews talks about something else here, the power of the age to come. Now, why this is significant is because they were at a shift of astrological ages. You've heard me teach on this. They were moving from the age of the lamb to the age of the fish. That's why Jesus was crucified as the lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. But his the sign of his coming, if you will, or the sign that he would give to this wicked and evil generation was the sign of Jonah, the sign of the fish. So he died as the Lamb of God. It signifies the end of the age of Ares, and he's vomited out of the fish, or he's, 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 he's taken up by the fish and vomited out of the fish, or in his resurrection, he initiates the age of Pisces. That's why in the Old Testament they were shepherds. In the New Testament they are fishermen. That's why in the Old Testament it's burnt offering. In the New Testament it's water baptism. It's rivers of living water. It's Anyway, I could go on and on about that. There's a shifting of the age. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that what you are partaking of right now, because remember, they're, they're in huge controversy. Like all their religious friends think they've lost their minds. They're the radical ones. They're the, the revolutionaries, right? They're the ones that, that have a different doctrine, that have a different God form, that have a different understanding, right? Because now they're leaving the elementary doctrines and, and to go on to perfection, they have to leave something to enter into something. He says, let us leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ in order to enter into the perfection. So I'm going to say it again. You have to leave something to enter into something. That's the message of Hebrews. That's the entire message of the first three chapters. He talks about leaving the wilderness and entering the promised land. It's a totally different administration. It's a totally different dispensation. It's the power of the age to come. Now, if I go back to 2015, there was a period of time in 2015 that I was serious about Pentecostal power. I was serious about prophecy. I was serious about miracles, signs, and wonders, whatever. And I was uh, tapping into some things where I was experiencing in visionary form every single day. And when I say visionary form, I don't just mean an imagination in my head. I mean, it's hard to describe. Uh, I know it wasn't physical reality, it was spiritual reality, but I'm seeing Jesus, uh, in, in, in three-dimensional form, although I knew it wasn't Jesus from heaven. I, I knew it was a visionary experience. I'm feeling, uh, the cocoon of the presence of God and the love of God. And every day it was as though Jesus was sitting down and teaching me things from the scriptures particularly about creation. I never got out of Genesis within that season. I never got out of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. And I never got out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. That's why I preached on it so much. If you go back and look at that time period, 2015, uh, I preached on that so much. And there were signs and wonders that, that followed with that. It would be fun to tell that whole story sometime. And then one night, I'm having this dream. Now, I want you to listen closely to this dream. I'm walking with Jesus down a mountain and there is a timeline running in between me and him and I'm watching it because I can see the dates and as we go down watch this we're going backwards in time we're going backwards in time now I was a firm believer there was nothing that could be done about the past that what belongs to us is the present and the future tomorrow belongs to you and me today and tomorrow belongs to you and me nothing we could do about yesterday so in my mind, in this dream, when I'm going back in time with Jesus, I'm really struggling. My mind is really struggling with this concept. And we're going back decades. Then now we're going back centuries, centuries, centuries. And I'm just struggling with this in my mind. And... I wake up, I'm so troubled by this, getting my mind around this, that I wake up, and when I wake up, I'm still in the experience. I mean, I know I'm laying there in my bed, but instead of seeing my room, I'm seeing the panorama of the dream that I was in. My eyes are wide open, I'm wide awake. I feel the bed, I know I'm awake. And I'm looking, and I hear Jesus looks at me, and he speaks to me, and he says, until you can let go 
of your concept of time and space, you will never partake of the power of the age, the power of an age to come. And he vanished. And from that moment forward, those visionary experiences have completely stopped. So get this in your mind. I'm I'm having visionary experiences. I'm communing, walking with Jesus in the heavenlies, in the spirit, every day, day after day, for weeks and months on end, learning phenomenal things, having phenomenal foreknowledge of events, tremendous signs and wonders, tremendous sense of the presence of God. Then I have this dream where I'm going back in time, back in history, and he says, unless you can let go of your concept of time and space, you will never partake of the power of the age to come. And now there's nothing, nothing, nothing. I can't, I can't even, if I try to imagine Jesus, I can't even fake it. I can't even daydream about it. I can't even go to the memory of it. It's like, I, all access to those experiences was completely cut off. Now imagine the shock that was to my system. And it took me until, I, I want to say that happened, Around, uh, uh, gosh, maybe the summer of that year. It took me till the following Easter. It took me several months to the following Easter to figure it out. But I got another piece of it, connecting this idea of the God of this age with the power of the age to come. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And you have to leave something. You have to leave the elementary principles to go on to something in order to partake of the power of the age to come. And what Jesus told me was, until you let go of your concept of time and space, but watch the context. So so I took that very generally. Well, how do I let go of my concept of time and space? Well, of course, in the eternal, everything's happening all at once. Um, you know, all these sort of philosophical things. But I want you to get the context. I'm walking down a mountain. I'm descending with the person of Jesus. Centuries, centuries. I'm going back to the point of the time of the historical Christ. I'm going back to the point of the time of the historical Jesus. I'm going back to the point of the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, a historical event. Here's the problem with Orthodox Christianity. Everything about Orthodox Christianity has Jesus locked up in time and space. Has your salvation locked up in time and space? How in the hell are you supposed to have a soul burdened with sin and guilt and lay it at the cross? You can't lay it at the cross because the cross was 2,000 years ago. God is going to save some and not save others because they believe in a historical event, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus? Is that how that works? I've got to convince you that Jesus was raised from the dead. I've got to convince you of an event that happened in time and space that the Bible itself says only 500 people (laughs) witnessed with their eyes, saw with their eyes. There were 500 people that day, and the entire eternal destiny of the entire human race is based on what happened historically and whether or not they can believe it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. No, Paul says in Colossians, again, I'm going to come back, even though I know Paul didn't write Colossians, but but the book of Colossians attributed to Paul says that he preached the gospel, and it's quite possible, even though he didn't write it, that it came out of one of his communities. So it can still be attributed to the teachings and the life of Paul. But he says, I preached to you in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and then i got to go. I preached to you the fullness of the word of God, the fullness of this gospel, which is the fullness of the word of God, These glorious riches which I am preaching among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, not the historical man, not his life and his teachings, not the historical man, not his life and his teachings, and certainly not connecting somehow intellectually or cognitively to a historical event. But see, that's Passover and Pentecost. Passover keeps you at the cross. Pentecost keeps you at the cross. And that's the power of the age that is that, that, that we have been in. And the God of this age is the God of Pentecost. The God of this age for Christians is the God of Passover. The God of this age is the historical Jesus that we have somehow amalgamated into the Godhead and said that Jesus Christ, the man, is the same as the eternal divine. And if you suggest that he's not, then you are a heretic. 
right? You are a heretic. But that is the God form of this age that governs the power of this age. But it also blinds you to the gospel of the light of the glory that's in you as a divine human being and can prevent you. If Out of my experience, unless you let go of your concept of time and space, you will not partake of the power of the age to come. So here's where a lot of us are at. There's a shifting and a changing. The prophetic as we have known it is over. And the evidence that it's over is that they missed it so much with the elections and with Trump. That they prophesied to perpetuate what has been rather than having the ability to see by the Spirit what has not been and call forth those things that be not as though they were. To speak a creative word that would shift and change and help people leave the elementary principles and the power of the age that is and move, if you will, from the Feast of Pentecost into the Feast of Tabernacles to give you a, a biblical paradigm for that. So the prophetic, the way that we've known it, is over. The, the the Pentecostal power, I mean, it's still there. You can still partake of it. But God, uh, th- there is a shifting and a changing, and there is a different form. It's going to take a different form. And we need people who do not just become good philosophers, who deconstruct, and they just have another good philosophy that they're able to bring forth. They just have other good truth that they're able to bring forth. We need to have the power of the age to come. We need to have uh, uh, the prophetic, but the prophetic's gonna look totally different. We need to have the, the, the moving of, of the, of the energy of the spirit, but that moving and brooding of the energy of the spirit is gonna look totally different. The God of this age, which is to come, is going to look totally different. The doctrine of this age, which is to come, is going to look totally different. So, my brothers and sisters, all that to say, and I've gone ten minutes longer than I wanted to. And I've really preached my guts out here. But all that to say that we are in a time of transition. We are in a time of transition. And unless you let go of the historical Jesus, that's the gospel of John. That's the gospel of John. That's what Jesus meant when Mary grabs hold of him and he says, Mary, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father and to my God, but go and tell my disciples that I am ascending to my Father and their Father, to my God and to their God. In other words, the same connection, the same reality that I have, they have. Don't cling to me. If you cling to me, you're going to miss it. Jesus said in John's Gospel, it is expedient to you that I go away. It is to your advantage that I depart from you. For if I do not depart from you, the Spirit will will not come to you, therefore leaving the elementary discussions of the basic principles of Christ. Let us leave that, let us depart from that, and let us move on to perfection. Can you see it? And so for 2,000 years, the church has clung to the historical Jesus like Mary at the empty tomb. But Jesus, the historical man, is at the empty tomb saying, don't cling to me because what I have, you have. And that's the gospel that we're seeing now. That's the gospel that we're seeing now. And some of us have to get over our codependent relationship with Jesus in the Spirit. We, we've needed Jesus there to comfort us. We've needed Jesus there to help us. We've needed Jesus there to lead us and speak to us and hold us. And we need Daddy God up there in heaven to help us overcome our wounds. And yet, conference after conference, book after book, uh, meeting after meeting, deliverance session after deliverance session, inner healing session after inner healing session, and we still have these wounds and still looking for daddy to somehow come and heal them. I'm not delivering on the goods like it's supposed to. You understand what I'm saying? But I really believe the crux of this is to be able to be weaned of the externals, to be able to be weaned of the Christ that is other than you. That's what he says actually in Hebrews 5. You gotta leave the milk and come into the meat. You've gotta wean yourself off of that codependent emotional neediness with your relationship with Jesus and begin to discover the riches of the glory of the Christ that is in you, that the Savior is in you. you. You begin to leave the Christ that is other than you for the Christ that is you. You begin to leave, if you will, the Jesus or the Savior that is other than you for the one that is you. You quit giving your devotion and worship to something outside yourself, and you begin to discover the power of the age to come, which is actually the glory that is already inside yourself. And while you're doing that, the spiritual dimension of light, to bring it full circle, begins 
begins to open up for you, not as a scary place, but as a place that you realize you don't have to be afraid of because you're not that weak spiritually. You don't have to be bullied or intimidated by bully spirits or deceptive spirits or evil spirits that are out there. And I believe there has to come some teaching and some understanding of the inhabitants of the spiritual plane, how the spiritual plane operates. And uh, maybe we'll keep going that direction. So anyway, thank you guys. Um, really, really appreciate it. Michelle, good to see you. Don, um, Byron, it's a shift in consciousness towards universal love and our Christhood. We are masters. We are God of God. <laughs> love that. Um, all right. So anyway, I'll, um, Ben says, don't confuse me with the facts, bro. I already made up my mind to drown in religious quicksand. <laughs> All right, gang. Love you guys. Thank you so much for watching. I hope this was a blessing to you. hope it helped you. I hope I'm not too redundant, um, but I just have to stay with something as long as it's with me and in me. So um, anyway, God bless you. Have a great day. Happy Valentine's Day. Again, whether you have an other, a Valentine that is other than you today, or you have a Valentine that is you, uh, be your own Valentine uh, and enjoy the day.